This episode is sponsored by Devil Dead by Linda Ladd, a missing girl, a crazed man ranting about demons and devils, and a sinister trail to follow. Devil Dead is the first book in a new spin-off series of dark and twisted thrillers centering around Detective Claire Morgan as she investigates some of the Midwest's most horrific crimes. This is one book that fans of Fargo will not want to miss. Devil Dead is on sale now everywhere ebooks are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 118. We're recording on Thursday, August 6th. It's an after dark. The sun is down. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Rebecca, happy Thursday night. Happy Thursday night to you as well. You know, for being a sleepy August week, we had a couple bombshells. So many. This was such a bonkers (laughs) week. Just crazy stories. Uh, I had to go eat a giant burrito to process all my feelings right before this. (laughs) You know when you need to carb up before a podcast, it's going to be an active one. Um, But so before we get into those meaty stories, let's do a little follow-up. Well, this isn't really follow-up. It's also the summer of lost manuscripts being found. Indeed. Uh, so this 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 time comes from it's uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, who has had a, a a new well it's not new he's been dead for seventy years so it can't be new but it's an unearthed lost story. Mm-hmm. This is kind of interesting because this guy named Andrew Gulli uh, or Gulli G U L L I. He's I, on a roll. I guess this is his like hobby or his job or something. Um, and he, he's an editor for a literary magazine called The Strand. No relation, I, I believe, to the Strand Bookstore. But he goes around to archives and collections and, you know, anywhere you can hear there's papers of, of authors and looks for new stuff, you know, stuff He's that like hasn't seen the light of day. The real life version of some literary detective that we all secretly wish we could be. Mm-hmm. In um, book. And so this, this one is called Temperature and it's a little comedy, some dialogue, you know, romance, tragedy, Fitzgeraldian, it sounds like. But there's a Woodhouse reference here, too, yeah. which I find really interesting. I wouldn't put Woodhouse in a sentence with Fitzgerald on most occasions. Mm-hmm. Um, the manuscript is j- dated July 7, 1939, which right. is late in Fitzgerald's life. So it's it's towards the end. Um, he also is says his next uh, story he's digging up, Gooley, is a very, very famous writer of detective stories. So I, I have a couple. I mean, that's Holmes, right? Mm-hmm. It that, has to be. That's got to be... be uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, which we've already had a story about that this summer come up. Um, so this summer we've had Harper Lee, mm-hmm. Dr. Seuss, yep. uh, Fitzgerald, Holmes, uh, maybe another Lee, if there's to be believed there's a third one. And there was another one or two, a Twain, <laughs> Twain letters, mm-hmm. uh, in the San Francisco uh, uh, column that he wrote, I guess, anonymously. Um, so there's stuff, I'm surprised that there's so much stuff out there, I guess, Stuff gets scattered, and people, you know, back in the old days, they'd send correspondence. There'd be one copy that they sent to their aunt who put it in a trunk, and now it's in somewhere in Vermont or something like that. So, uh, but I guess we're just going to get these from now, from now, uh, from now on. Um, I guess if you want to find, if you want to read it, it doesn't look like it puts up on, um, but the website is strandmag.com. I'll put a link to the show from NPR's where we're reading this from in the show notes, and uh, you can go check it out there once it's uh, online. So Literary Detectives, that's um, it's a little Dan Brownie. Oh, yes. 
If Dan Brown could write the HBO series about literary detectives. Loosely based I, on Andrew Gooley digging around yes. in people's attics. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I like that. I like mm-hmm. that. I'm in. I'm and in on that one. I'm so in. And so we've got Harper Lee and Dr. Seuss. And now Andrew Gooley has found John Steinbeck and Fitzgerald. And we think he's working on Holmes. Like, I would really like some previously undiscovered Nathaniel Hawthorne. Oh, Oh, I like that. Very mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some secret Eudora Welty somewhere. <sighs> yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, let's see. Well, Ellison, Ellison stuff all survived. It's just a mm-hmm. mess. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you know, some, like uh, Faulkner w- must have written some weird letters to people. Maybe something that Zora Neale Hurston left in a bag in the Caribbean when she was writing. You know. Uh, their eyes are watching. She wrote mm-hmm. that in six weeks in like a little hut in the Caribbean somewhere. Do you Such know that? Such a great story. I did. I remember that from college. She fam- famously a great traveler. She'd you know drive around the South in her little red convertible. Uh, you know something flew out in, in, around Montgomery or Eatonville. Maybe someone's got a, a lost Hurston short story somewhere. Um, we need to kick Vince Vaughn and Colin Farrell to the curb and get this now. Oh, I, for this sure. This is what I want. Lit Detective. <laughs> True Detective season three. Tome Detective. Tome, no, that's not, not any better. Oh, you're, you're, it's you're, not yeah, any I mean, better. Come on, it's equally bad. I'll give you this. True that much. Tome Detective. <laughs> no, 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 boy, this yeah. isn't after Whew. dark. Wow, <laughs> I'm done. Uh, we're done. Okay, speaking <laughs> of uh, um, things where we'll embarrass ourselves, <laughs> Book Riot Live. We have so through August 31st, we have a special deal on Book Riot Live tickets. If you use offer code Wheelhouse, one word, you can save twenty dollars on your ticket. Go to BookRiotLive.com. Um, so here's what's going to happen when you come to brookride.com. It's at the Metropolitan West, November 7th and 8th of this year. Two days of wall-to-wall book nerddom is what we're looking at here. A bunch of panels, signings, vendors, tables, live podcast recordings, interviews, talks, all kinds of stuff going on. Um, we've, we've got new programming, programming added all the time. If you go to bookridelive.com, slash schedule or go to program at the top tab there you can see the stuff that's starting to be filled in there's more coming um the new thing this week so it's this cool the space is pretty cool i want to talk about the space a little bit it's a two floors and what you're going to do it's 42nd uh, excuse me 46th street and 12th avenue on the far west side of manhattan you can see the u.s has intrepid um air and space museum it's a mothballed aircraft carrier right across the street you're going to go in you're going to go up these stairs through these double glass doors and you're going to go into like this huge room and on that first floor there's going to be tables and tables of vendors you're going to have the our official store there you're going to see signing lines in the back there's going to be chairs set up for the panels and and stages um and the thing that's cool about the event is going to be if you just want to sit down and start reading no one's going to care this is the the one time could be a, a group full of people you're like i've had enough people time I'm going to sit down, pull out my book, and just start reading for a little while. We're going to have a couple lounges where you can just go de- you know, decompress for a few minutes. We're going to have um, things where you can get together with other attendees. It's not just going to be all looking at podiums the whole time and having people talk at you. A whole bunch of different things, kind of things. One thing I want to highlight today, uh, Ryan Chapman has been running Bookish Jeopardy in and around Manhattan for, what, several years now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to have authors, industry folks, and readers go head-to-head in a battle of wits, memory, and courage. He's going to write up a bunch of bookish Jeopardy questions, and there's going to be a contest uh, there. We're going to have live Jeopardy. I don't even know who the, the combatants will be, but it, it'll be a lot of fun. So that's one. That's the kind of idea mm-hmm. of the kind of stuff you're going to get there. Not just panels too, signings too, but a whole bunch of other different kind of things 
as well. There's something you were going to talk. Yeah, what, the what panels. Do you want to... Well, I think it's important for people to know our panels aren't like, here's the romance panel, here's the yes. thriller panel, here's the literary fiction panel where five white guys talk about how hard it is to write books about middle-aged white guys. Because um, we at Book Riot read all the genres, and we know that our listeners and our readers read all the genres, and we really wanted to draw connections between between readers and between writers of all genres and to talk about bigger issues in publishing. So most of the panels that you do see are going to be authors from a bunch of different genres who write a bunch of different kinds of books talking about some bigger idea in books or the reading life. Uh, and one of those that we've just finalized this week that's being moderated by our own Kristen Stickles. Uh, she's a Book Riot contributor, and she's also the children's and young adult buyer at McNally Jackson, which is a great independent bookstore in Manhattan. It's called Give Good Books, How to Buy for Kids, because everybody knows about Goodnight Moon and Little House on the Prairie. But like, what do you do after those for kids and teens in your life? And Kristen will be joined by Alvina Ling, who's the VP and editor in chief at Little Brown Books for Young Readers, and uh, whom you just had on the Reading did, Lives yes. podcast. Uh, Greg Pack, who's an author and who writes great comics. Lori Hulse Anderson, a wonderful and very well known important young adult author. And Stacey Whitman, who is a publisher from Two Books, which is part of Lee and Lowe, which is a great uh, smaller publisher that does really interesting, diverse titles and is really active uh, in the world of publishing and activism. And so you can hear Kristen talk with those folks about how to pick out books for kids. What are some of the great new books for kids? What are the secret hidden gems from long ago that we don't think about anymore? And and so many other things. Uh, so we want to solve your problems as readers at Book Riot Live also. All right. So yeah, go Book Riot Live, bookriotlive.com. And uh, if you use, well, if you want to go ahead and get your ticket, now's the time to do it. 20 bucks off if you use offer code wheelhouse one word. And, that, and you know, we'll see you there. We're going to be there all over the place, uh, Shinsky and I. It's just going to be Muppet Arms for 48 it's hours. It's really, I'm, I'm already starting to be a flutter about the whole thing. Okay. Wait, do you get a flutter? Well, I mean, metaphorically. <laughs> metaphorically a flutter. Yeah, metaphorically a flutter. <laughs> Um, let's, let's see here. Let's do our first sponsor, uh, man. We got to get into this thing and then you can gear up because this first real story after this sponsor is a doozy. Okay. So Scribd. Scribd, which we love. Let's talk about Scribd because they're great. Scribd is a subscription book service online. You go to Scribd.com slash book riot. You're going to get unlimited access, all the books you can read um, from their library. That's more than half a million eBooks and audiobooks, So you can put as many books as you want into your head via your eyeballs or your ears. Uh, at Scribd.com slash BookRiot, you're going to get a free month. They work with the best publishers around major houses like HarperCollins, Simon & Schuster, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. They also have a lot of great titles from innovative small presses, including McSweeney's, CounterPoint, and Tin House. And with your subscription, you get access to more than those 30,000 audiobooks and some of the biggest new releases. These publishers are trying front list on audio in Scribd. Recently, we talked about Missoula by John Krakauer, and that's one of the ones that Penguin Random House uh, released to Scribd while it's out in hardcover. So, you know, seeing some interesting experimentation there as well. Also, and more importantly, Scribd helps you find your way to books you're going to love that maybe you haven't heard about yet. They have hundreds of collections that are curated by their team of editors, so you can you know, look through their collections based on topic, based on things that you're interested in, genres that you want to try, and they tailor your recommendations to you based on other books you've loved or not. So they're paying attention there. Their system, their algorithm, the magic behind the machine knows how many stars you gave a certain type of book and what that means for the next type of book 
book that they should recommend to you. When you go to scribd.com slash book riot to get your free one month trial, you're also going to see a bunch of favorites from us, things that we love that are available on scribd. Uh, Jasmine Ward's memoir is there. Uh, my favorite James Salter book, a sport and a pastime is there. My favorite current comic, the first volume of Lumberjanes is there. They have tons of great comics on Scribd as well. You can get a taste of so many things. And after your one month free trial, it's just $8.99 a month for unlimited ebooks, audiobooks, and comics. Makes it so easy to try a new thing. This is my favorite thing about Scribd, I think, is that you can dip into something, see what you think about it, read 20 pages. If it's not working, you just try something else. It didn't cost you anything extra. There's no real risk uh, to expanding your boundaries as a reader. And there's so much potential upside there. You could discover that you really do like romances or you really do like thrillers or that author that you'd sort of been thinking about trying for a while, but you didn't want to plunk down 15 bucks for an ebook. Well, try it in your free one month trial or try it uh, when you've got your membership going, but knowing that it won't cost you anything extra. We just think they're great. Uh, Scribd.com slash book gets you one month free. We're happy to help you find other books there in addition to the ones that we've put up on, um, on our special recommendations page. So you can hit us up on Twitter, let us know, and we will help you find something. I, I've got a quick recommendation um, on Scribd. They have the complete David McCullough um, there. <laughs> and I'm in the middle of a David McCullough binge. You are um, on some kind of binge. Let's see. I've done um, the Wright Brothers. I think I talked about them on the show before. Uh, I did 1776. Uh, I've done uh, The Greater Journey, which is about Americans in Paris around the turn of the century. I've done The, Jones the Johnstown Flood. Um, and I'm just gearing up to start The Path Between the Seas, which is about the uh, the construction of the Panama Canal, which is a 30-hour audiobook. Um, it's 698 pages on script, but you can check all of those out there. They're great. I mean, they're so good. 1776 was especially good for people who like Killer Angels. Um, it's not written like Killer Angels, like it's a, like a novel, but it has that same sense of urgency where you're following troop movements and you've got good big personalities and there's danger and you know where every single unit is and what happens on specific days and... Just kind of amazing stuff. The, the thing about 1776 is it follows not, um, you know, Jefferson and Franklin. It's about Washington leading the American army. Uh, and basically they're just getting their butt kicked up and down <laughs> the eastern seaboard. Uh, and the book begins with the, the, the outbreak of hostilities against the British and ends with the turning point that starts to turn things around at the end of 1776. And there's twists and turns, but... There's the John Adams is there, the Great Bridge is there. I mean, it's if you if you want to get into some McCullough, you've got all sorts of of choices there, and uh, you know that's an unbelievable place to start and great value because these. I mean, the Great Bridge is like the Great Bridge is 600 pages long. John Adams is 752 pages They're long. They're all like, enormous. The 1776 wasn't that. It was actually one of the shorter ones. It was only uh, 400 pages long. Um, so you can really get into this stuff, uh, and it's a great value. I mean, you're paying the 8.99 for the month, and you can just do thousands of pages of awesome mm -hmm. American history. Yeah, 8.99 wouldn't get you half a David McCullough. No, paperback. no, no, it really, it really wouldn't. Okay, so thanks so much for Scribd for sponsoring this show. That's Scribd.com, S-C-R-I-B-D slash uh, Riot slash Book, book riot. riot slash Book Riot. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <sighs> All right, so you and I, we, we, we don't really travel in the romance 
world like it's its own ecosystem yeah i'm like a little bit romance adjacent but only like just the very outside of my circle touches the very outside of their circle i, I think I follow, there's some sort of fancy geometric term for that no, <laughs> the, the, the tangent there's an asym you're asymptotic to romance um, i am i am romance asymptotic yes yes uh <laughs> and i follow some romance authors and people uh, you know fans and writers on uh, sure critics on twitter because it's interesting i like to know what's going on and i don't think i've I've seen a story quite like this that has has basically set the romance world on fire. So here's what happened. Um, uh, there's a romance novel that was published last year, and it was nominated for a Rita. Is that how you say that? Or they say, yes. and I don't even know what that stands for, but it's the Romance Writers of America Award. So it's like the Emmy or Oscars of romance writing. So it's a big deal mm -hmm. in the romance world. And those go through several different... Yes. Uh, Vetting process, vetting, you know, vetting, yeah, vetting, different like rounds. levels, phases of judging. And this one got to be a finalist. I don't think it won, um, but and once it got to this point, the other thing about romance there's so many of them that even people who read a bunch of romances miss stuff because there's just mm -hmm. so many. Yeah, it's not like even in literary fiction where you have a pretty good sense of most of the novels. Right, yes. Even if you didn't read them, like there's stuff you just haven't even heard of before, even if you follow romance closely. So this this novel came out and it was published and nominated for Rita this year called For Such a Time by Kate Breslin. Um, and now that it made it to the finals of the readers, a bunch of other people are reading because like other literary awards, once things to make it to the finals, like people pay attention, they start reading all the finals because that's fun and it's good sport. And now everyone, it, now people are like, what is going on with this book? Because listen to this plot. So, like, I know what you're about to say, and I'm cringing. You can't, so th the short, the short version is it's a retelling of the book of Esther, except not really, in which a Nazi co camp commander saves a Jewish woman from Dachau, then takes her to Tarienstadt, and then to Czechoslovakia. There they fall in love, and through a magically appearing Bible, find Jesus, and then they save the Jews. In the end, the woman converts to Christianity because that's her redemption arc. I'm reading from a long mm -hmm. uh, opinion piece by Billy Ogato. Um, I think her name is Catherine Locke who writes this. I'm not sure. Yes, it is. Um, and I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to read it. And the commander, the hero of the story, gets redemption for his being yeah. a Nazi camp commander as well. And uh, that that's it. That, that So they, that's the love story. He's, he's the camp commander of Theresienstadt, which is not like, it's a, he's not like a guard who is either you, you guard and you, I mean, even that would be, that'd be bad enough, but this is like, mm -hmm. you know, Ray Fiennes in uh, Schindler's List? That's this guy. He's in charge of the camp. Um, you know, as, as, as Catherine goes on to say here, you know, this is a historical place and like this person, you know, I don't think that the person, the character is the, the same person, but like given the, the role, that was a real you role. Can, yeah, you can imagine who he's modeled yeah, on. Yeah, like, you know, making people st stand out in the cold until they literally drop dead, sending off to Auschwitz to get gassed, shot. And the, I mean, all killed thousands of children. Like, and so what's, there's, so there's several crazy things about it. The craziest, I don't know what the crazy part. The cra one crazy part is this book got A, written, mm -hmm. and B, published by, you know, a, a romance publishing house. Yeah, there's Suleika Snyder, uh, who's also a romance writer and has worked in publishing, also wrote a great a blog post about her experience at the Romance Writers of America conference as well. And she mentions, you know, 
that we don't know that it's impossible that someone who, that a woman in a concentration camp couldn't have fallen in love with a commander. We don't know. She's not doubting that it's possible. But the questioning here is, is this the type of story that we want to tell? And is this a romantic hero? And is the path to a woman, to a Jewish woman's redemption to be found through a magically appearing Bible and then a conversion that not just not just kind of, but fully calls into question the validity of her original Jewish faith. Um, uh, this is just not the kind of story that we want to hold up as exemplary of any genre of the romance genre. And the, the real question is how, how did it get published? But then once it was published, how did this make it through so many different readers to the point that it became a contender for awards? I mean... I was Sarah, I, I frankly was shocked that the, that it did. I mean, I guess you know one one point that Kate I don't know makes in this piece that she sort of doesn't really dance around. She more sort of touches on is like how the Holocaust has become a storytelling playground, and I use that word intentionally because it's become just a scaffolding in a lot of senses to tell stories because the it's dramatic. Um, and it's familiar to some degree. You know, you don't have to explain to people, most people, what the Holocaust is, so you, you already have sort of a built-in schema for the world you're dealing with, which is one thing that happens in romance. It's like you have historical and regency romances. Like, you, you have these schemas, so you don't have to, like, and build out the world every time so you can focus on the characters sure. and, and the plot. and there are certainly, like, you know, other Civil War romances. Yeah, oh, yeah, and... sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think that's the part that got me thinking the most about my own reading and, mm. and consuming of culture is just how much the Holocaust has be become a storytelling platform and what that does to the historical reality of the Holocaust. And this is just, this is just a particularly egregious example of it. It is. And, it, you know, part of the romance formula, because romances are written on a formula, is the redemption of the hero and heroine at the end of the story, and then the happily ever after. And that's a necessary piece of a romance novel. And so the characters have to be redeemable. You have to, their bad things have to be bad things that can be forgiven and overcome. Mm -hmm. And uh, in Catherine's piece here. And then and Sarah Wendell of Smart Bitches Trashy Books also wrote a, a great open letter that is linked in Catherine's piece, um, says, you know, I don't think that mass genocide is a forgivable thing. Kate Breslin, her publishers, her readers, and the RWA do. Um, this is uh, mm -hmm. that's a direct quote from Catherine's piece, and she she talks about how we get to the place that these are stories that are being told. She also makes, and many people that were talking about this book made the important point that there's no consent between mm -hmm. a person who's a prisoner in a, in a prison camp um, and the person who is so high up that he is running the camp. Um, when in America, when a prisoner and a prison guard today have sex, we, we consider that to be rape, regardless of what conversations mm -hmm. they might have had, regardless of whether they say that they love each other. Um, it doesn't matter. That's an unequal power dynamic. And it's that relationship that and that sexual act is defined as rape. And she makes the point here that what happens to the woman in this story is a thing that did happen to many women during the Holocaust. They were raped by, um, by camp guards and by camp commanders. They didn't have power to say no and to turn that dynamic into something that's not just romantic, but 
redeemable and that the relationship drives the character's redemption through not just getting beyond the terrible atrocities that the camp commander character commits, but but because the main character has to give up her faith as if Mm. the faith is the problem. The fact that she's Jewish is the problem. Yeah. Um, (laughs) That that they end up Christian and everything's okay in Czechoslovakia at the end is like... It's bonkers. It's really is, bonkers. I don't even... It's like turtles on turtles on mm. turtles all the way down. Yeah, and it's interesting because, like, I don't know, the line, because, like, let's say something that I do like that's said in... That's... Take uh, Inglorious Bastards, the Tarantino mm. movie, right? I mean, that uses... It's not, it's not a Holocaust film, although it's definitely a presence, like... Christopher Waltz, the opening scene, he's looking for hiding Jews under the floorboard and it's very dramatic. And, you know, it got me thinking after reading this is like, how much of that is, and that's also a, fi- I mean, that's that's an alternate history, right? Inglorious mm-hmm. Bastards, like none of that stuff actually happened. It's wish fulfillment about, you know, killing Nazis and going in and murdering Hitler in a, in a movie theater. And, I, and it got me thinking a little bit about like, man, I wonder... I wonder if that's okay. I mean, I don't know. Like, how much is that? How much of the fun? And frankly, there are fun scenes in that movie. Is dependent on f- kind of a willful forgetting of the actual historical reality of what's going on. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, it, it's it's troubling. And I think, you know, um, Catherine makes a good point. It's like the scale of the of the genocide of the Holocaust is so mind-bogglingly incomprehensible that there's your brain almost wants to simplify it and boil it down and flatten it out you know like 6 million people you know systematically murdered like the it, it's you know the one of the great tragedies of, of human history if not the greatest one and you know I don't know like especially romance too it's not like romance has many virtues but one thing it doesn't do is self-consciously think about what mm-hmm. it's doing you know you know it, it's not romance it tends not to like be meta romance. That's what kind of gets into literary fiction or something like that. So it's not problematizing any of the things going on. Um, that's not something that happens in romance. The happy, ever, happy, happy ever after is kind of the isn't. Wouldn't you say the signal virtue of a of a romance? I mean, if yeah, if, if a romance not, has like, to have by one defini- thing, by definition, if it, if there's not a happily ever after, it's not a romance. And it's just like the hap- that those the Holocaust and a happily ever after ending. I just. I just don't know that that's responsible in any kind of way to, yeah. to start there. I think we're at a we're really at a place and a moment in culture right now too, where we're reminding ourselves and we are being reminded by the people who are descendants of those mm-hmm. who suffered through them uh, of the realities of the Holocaust. And uh, with Tana Hasi Coates's new book, we're being reminded of the realities of slavery and of the ways that um, that American culture is built on subjugating black people. And I was thinking with, as this came out about what similar conversations we'd be having if there were a romance between, you know, a, a white plantation oh. owner and a a black woman who was his slave that he fell in love with and Mm. what that redemption arc might look like in fiction and all of the problems there would be with that and the conversations that we would have. But it seems like that's the kind of like this is the kind of mistake that people are making right now. And it's probably a mistake that's been made before. I'd have a hard time believing that this is the first romance novel that has ever attempted to tell this story. But we are now no longer and for very good reasons tolerating Mm. 
these kinds of stories and lifting them up. And I think it has a lot to do with how with the diversity of voices and the diversity of people that that have access to voice problems with these things. Catherine talks a lot in this piece about microaggressions that she's experienced as a Jewish woman, um, just the the daily difficulties of being a Jewish person in America, um, things that people who aren't Jewish might not realize even occur. And I think that happens to to many oppressed groups that we've probably told terrible, quote unquote, romantic stories about before. It's this is just the latest horrifying example. Yeah. Two nominations. Um, here's from Sarah Wendell. This, there's a real killer mm-hmm. paragraph here. I'm just going to read a couple of sentences from it. I know that books like For Such a Time by Kate Breslin do not happen in a vacuum. More than one person had to agree that this story is worth writing, worth editing, worth publishing, and then worth nominating for the Rita as best first book and best inspirational romance. I question the judgment of those who evaluate this book in the first round and am, to be honest, very thankful that it did not win. Wow, I mean, that, mm-hmm. that's, that, that's the thing here. Because like, we're not really talking, I mean, that someone wrote this book is, to me, not that interesting. People write stuff all the people write mm-hmm. crazy stuff all the time like that it got published is more troubling than that but then that it got that it got shoveled through the process to be nominated for the most prestigious the, awards mm-hmm. is just dozens of people had to have their hands hundreds of five star reviews on yeah. goodreads like this I think how, that's more troubling than it getting written at all to be and honest and that's what we're talking about when we talk about systemic prejudices and unconscious biases, I think, you know, I, I hope, and I want to believe that the people at, uh, at what is her name, the woman who wrote the at Breslin's publisher, were not like, well, this might be problematic, but we're going to publish it. Anyway, I hope that it wasn't a willful ignoring. It's not really any better that they didn't realize there were problems. Yeah, I don't know. But, do you want to be obtuse? Or do you want to be there's there's something Mystery notable going on when dozens, if not hundreds, of people can have their hands on a book like this and not realize. And no one said, you know what? Maybe not with the nomination for this one. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I mean, it's 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 an extremely troubling case. I think um, in the terms of for the romance community to take a look at themselves, because I think you could maybe look at. You know, I'm sure there are other stories that people could talk mm-hmm. to, could point to. You know, one thing that I was watching unfold on Twitter is people I know that read a lot of romance were saying, "Boy, I haven't read many romances written by Jewish women about mm-hmm. Jewish women." And so there was um, an effort to made to surface some of those. So I think if any, I hope some good will come out of it in that regard. Like mm-hmm. you know, to, to, there's a lot of worms under this rock, but maybe by lifting the rock up, the grass underneath it can grow a little bit. Right, and, and try to hopefully do one of the big things that can and could and hopefully will come out of it is a diversity of people being involved in Romance Writers of America, a more diverse group of people being involved yeah. in romance publishing. We need more diversity in publishing in general so that there is more than one person in the room who could recognize these problems. Mm-hmm. Like it's, when we talk about, you know, I, Roxane Gay frequently tweets about this and she's very um, articulate on the subject of why it's not just about having diverse writers for a publication, but about having diverse editors as well, having diverse people higher up in the chain in publishing who come from diverse backgrounds who can recognize there is a problem with this book and here's why, and we shouldn't publish it. I guess the silver lining is, thank goodness that we're in a place where 
we have the internet and we have communities that come together and we get these conversations are finally being had. Mm -hmm. Readers get a voice to talk back to the people who make their books about the standards that should be applied and the story, the kinds of stories that shouldn't be told. Um, it's I'm happy to see that that is happening, that there is pushback. That's good. That there's pushback is great. Okay. Hmm. Um, another depressing story. Um, to, 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 I think this was, this took the internet by storm, this next story. Yeah, this I was, was like, seeing this all over mm -hmm, the place, it, not it just went in out our all circles. Over the place. Um, do you want to take this one? I took the last one of the setup. Sure. So uh, a writer named Catherine Nichols has a novel that she's querying. She's sending it out to agents, you know, trying to get representation. And she decided to find out what would happen if she sent her novel out, uh, sometimes under her name, but sometimes under a man's name. She had read studies about um, unconscious bias, about, you know, the ways that people will judge the exact same material differently when it has a man's name or a woman's name on it. And she decided to set up an email address under a man's name. Um, for the purposes of this story, she calls the man George, and she leaves the email address. Uh, she leaves it empty. Um, weeks go by without word from agents who had read her work. And she keeps doing this. Long story short, she ends up sending her manuscript out to a bunch of agents under her real name and under George's name. And lo and behold, George gets more responses and better responses by like eight times. Eight and a half times as many. <laughs> so George gets 30 query, like requests mm -hmm. for full or partial manuscripts, and she got three. No. Yeah, let's see. Three, she sends, yeah, three, yeah, three. She sent six queries one day. Within 24 hours, George had five responses, three that were manuscript requests and two that were warm rejections. For contrast, when she sent them out under her own name, the exact same letter and the same pages 50 times, 50 queries, had netted her a total of two manuscript mm. requests. The responses to um, to George, you know, made her mad, but they were they were more positive. George got better feedback. People were nicer about rejecting George when they rejected him. And she gives examples of all of those here. So fully a third of the agents who saw George's query wanted to see more. And the numbers for Catherine, the manuscript submitted for Catherine, never shifted past one in 25. Mm. <laughs> it's... I mean... <laughs> there's, you know, it's not a... I mean, the thing is... I'm not surprised. No, I mean, the, the scale eight and a half is a lot. I mean, I was expecting lot. maybe double, even three times might have been the outside of what like, I would thought. But boy, oh boy. I think boy. when I tweeted about it, I said that it was, you know, utterly predictable and utterly disappointing. Um, but that's what, you know, she, Catherine Nichols herself has been reading studies about yeah. unconscious bias. This is how it works. The famous social psych studies that if you took like Psych 101, you hear about are things usually with resumes where they send yeah. the exact same resume out with a man's name or a woman's name or with a traditional white sounding name and then a more ethnic sounding name. And they look at how those candidates are evaluated and the kinds of feedback that, you know, put, you know employers are giving about the applications that they think they're giving based purely on quality qualifications, but the only variable is that person's name and what they think the name, you know, the things that the name makes you think about a person that you don't even realize you're thinking. And that's what she's getting at here. So I also wish I were mm -hmm. surprised. It was really interesting watching publishing react to this. Yeah. Like, 
um it's it, so the this is a one this is one person's experience it's not like a methodologically sound no 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 it's one data She's, point even the sample set yeah. i guess i bet if you ran the stats you know <laughs> if you really did like the the number the difference in the numbers mm-hmm. may not be i'm always surprised when i see professional statisticians look at something like this and like well it, you know, it could be more random mm-hmm. than you think, but this, it throws it into great yeah, she's and, and Nichols is not saying she conducted a study, but yeah. I think this is a conversation that we can't possibly have often enough because it's a problem that's still very real. And it was really interesting watching agents. People don't, we don't want to think that we're biased. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody wants to think that they're biased, but we all have these unconscious biases. And that's what all those social psych studies are getting at. That's what Nichols is getting at here. She's not saying agents read my work and they rated it lower because they knew I was right. a woman and they intentionally thought, oh, Ugh, this is a ladies. woman writing this book, another book by right. a woman. Nope. Oh, this is a book by a man. Gosh, I like men. Men are good writers. Yes. It's all these things that are programmed into us from the day that we're born that we soak in from the culture that we live in that cause us to make automatic assumptions and unconscious assumptions. And that's what she's getting at here. And there were agents saying like, well, it depends on maybe she sent all of like, she talks about some of the times and the days when she sent George's queries versus her own queries. Well, I only check my email on certain days. And so if I were answering, that's email, all complete rubbish. Yeah. 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 And, and <laughs> it was just, that was the maddening part was watching publishing respond to it and be like, Oh, well I'm an agent and I'm not sexist. So she must have she must have been doing something to manipulate this or she must have sent George's things on a different day. This couldn't be real. Like this is real. This is a real thing that is an established phenomenon for decades. Um, and there were so many people gaslighting it. Just so many. This is the thing that's the thing that's so tough about this is what do you do about this? Because I mean so let's let's put the, the agents to the side for a second and say that the you know people trying to sweep it under the rug and say there's this it's an aberration for some reason it's not representative of some which I think is poppycock to be honest with you. Mm-hmm, I agree. But then what do you do, right? Like because you can I mean the same studies have also shown that you a way to fight it isn't to like tell people not to be biased, right? right. Like that also <laughs> doesn't really work. That 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 cultural bias works in like blind submissions is that what they should be doing you know i think there's this like ideal world in which everything is a blind submission right but i don't think that publishing could work that way now like i wish publishing could but so much of getting your book published has to do with the business of publishing Mm -hmm. now and if you have never been published before and you're querying an agent to try to get your first book out in the world they're not just looking for the content of the book they need to know who it's a package unfortunately like who are you do you have a lot of twitter followers have you written a bunch of well-received articles in big publications or if you're writing nonfiction, have you been published in a bunch of areas where now you're known as the expert in the Mm -hmm. thing you know your name and your reputation count for whether you're getting a book deal and so submitting blind we'd have to get we could get rid of all that structure Mm. and then you could submit blind and then we could tell ourselves that we were just publishing based solely on literary merit but there are a lot of interesting sort of micro studies about that not really working either Mm -hmm. i don't know what i don't know what you do here other than if you are an agent Maybe you, 
I don't, well, maybe the first round is blind. Like maybe your first round of submissions should be blind. You read a thing and if you think you yeah. want to hear more about it, then you get the, then you get in touch with the person. Right. Or you, you at least make, at least you, I don't know. I, I don't know how this really works. I'm more thinking about when I, I would grade, especially final exams blind. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when I was a grad student to, to avoid not, so, there are different kinds of biases. One is like, my, when my professor said, you're going to like some students and you're not going to like some right. students. And grading the final exam blind is really the only way you can do it because, you know, it doesn't matter if you like them or not to grade the exam. Now, participation and those other things, that's subjective. And if they've been a good student in the class, you can do that. But when you're grading the exam, you know, grade it blind and then turn it over and see the name. And there you go. Well, for this, let's say you get a query and it's, it's, the, it's blind and you sort of decide whether or not this is something you'd like to see, at least that would get you over that first step mm-hmm. um, of just dismissing something out of hand or coming up with reasons that something wouldn't work. I don't know, but this is one of those situations where it's so baked into the culture that this is kind of where the water starts seeping out of the ground. Like this is this, you know, this is one of the wellspring mm-hmm. points, right? Like this is not, you know, what gets marketing dollars where you could just say, okay, we need, right. you know, you could really slice up the pie differently and say like, we need this much money going to this kind of author and this is fair. This is really like the root of the, the root. This isn't the first story like this no. that we've heard a, a couple years ago. I think maybe it was pre us having a podcast. There was a woman writer who had sold her book under a male pen mm-hmm. name mm-hmm. and then told, and then the publisher, you know, found out that she was a woman. Um, and she wrote a piece about that. I don't remember it going as wide. I kind of hope that there are like women writers all over the place submitting their manuscripts under male pen names. Maybe that's what we should do. Maybe all of the mm. women writers, everyone submits under a dude's pen name. Everyone is George. Right. And Chris, Chris <laughs> Dixon. And then everyone can get the benefit of being perceived on paper as a man. Or everyone should submit as a woman. All the dudes out there, we're all Chris Dixon, and you get, you know, you get thrown in the same pile. I mean, the, the, there's, a, there's several very bad implications of this that I think we all know to be true, right? Mm-hmm. That have to be true, which is there are more mediocre men getting published than there are mediocre women getting published, right? And, and yes. I mean, that's, and forget about the rest of it, like that there's, there's got to be just, hundreds of manuscripts out there that if this kind of sexism wasn't the case, there'd be hundreds of books that aren't on the shelf and hundreds of different books that would be on the shelf. Mm-hmm. I mean, hundreds is an understatement. There's thousands of books um, like this, that what we see in front of us, kind of like the the uh, redenomination for, for such a time was the end result of a long process of blindness so too do what we see on the bookshelves in front of us. It's, a, it's the product of a long process mm-hmm. of biases. And it's like, that any women get published at all, this is where it starts. Because then think of all the negative reinforcement women get to write to even, I mean, to even get to the point mm-hmm. where you'll try to do a draft. Right. And then they get an agent. This is just getting an agent. This isn't getting your manuscript sent out to editors. Right. So and you know many, the editors are just as bad, have to be just as great, bad. how many writers are trying to query agents right now or thinking about querying agents and they're hearing stories yeah. like this as women and thinking, I'm not even going to try right. because a man is going to get one in three and I'm going to get one in 25. Yeah. Right. That's, 
there's so many upsetting pieces about it. And you're so you're right when we talk about what, judging things based on what we see in front of us and making those judgments without thinking about it. It really is that unconscious sort of the, what Malcolm Gladwell calls the blink judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading something recently about colleges, some colleges requiring applicants to put pictures of themselves wow. on the applications and all of the problems with that, because it's also well established in research that humans perceive attractive people as competent and smart. Mm-hmm. We just do. We think they are just by looking at them. Um, and of course, that's not the bias that we want to bring into something like college applications. Um, we have, And I think most of us are willing to believe that about humans and about ourselves that we might attribute things to people based on their appearances. Um, Nobody likes stories like this because it forces us to say, I might have unconscious sexist biases. And if we're honest, we all have them. And often we don't even know where our biases lie. Um, Oh, I can't remember her last name right at the moment. One of the editors that I follow online said, you know, I think that there are some problems with the way that Catherine Nichols conducted this. And I have some questions about her story, but I'm not ready to say that I don't possess any biases I'm not aware of. Well, you know what? Great for you because mm-hmm. you do. And so do you. And so do I. Right. Like, that, I think that's like we should we should all at least be there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why they're unconscious biases. If you mm-hmm. knew about them, they wouldn't be unconscious biases. And you know, it's... Please don't send me emails about how editors don't all hate women. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. You know, but the, the the thing that's so nettlesome about it is there's not there's not some clear course of action to be... Like, like we said, like, do you just wait for the ocean to warm up, I guess? Like, you know, you, mm-hmm. you hope you're part of a process in which someday that, you know, this is, we'll look back at articles like this and, and think of it's ridiculous in 70 years or something like that. Is that, we just keep having the conversation over and over again. I, I guess maybe that's, or maybe that's the, the maybe, dude part of me that just wants to go fix it. Maybe as an agent, since you are the first gatekeeper that a writer encounters, if you want to make change in this, you set yourself some goals. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Goals. You say I'm taking on, you know, more than 50% of my clients will be women. If you're thinking about other kinds of representation, you say at least one third of my clients are going to be people of color. Um, if you think about international, then maybe mm-hmm. you take on some clients who are working on literature that will be translated. Um, but that's, I think that's one of the places that it can start. If, yeah. agent, if agents make some decisions for themselves, you're not going to have to sacrifice, you know, quality. If you're trying to get to 50% books by men and 50% books by women. You're yeah, not if you take... really believe that to be true, it should work, <laughs> right? Like, if you really believe that um, there, there's no, you know, the difference between... That maybe between, men just write better books. Right, that the difference between is, is, is zero, essentially, then something like that would work. Because, you know, we mm-hmm. get this a lot from readers of Book Riot, and they say to us, you know, my own reading, I now pay attention to different kinds of diversity uh, in my reading. And it it's made a difference. Like my numbers are different now and I'm finding authors that I wouldn't have found otherwise. Mm -hmm. And it's been really positive. Like it's very hard to improve what you don't measure. And there are measurable statistics they could do. They could take a look at the names of all of the queries they get. And they're not going to be hundred percent accurate in assigning gender to them. Um, Or whatever other kinds of diversity as well. Like the other ones are, are more difficult probably by names, but like say, I think about, 70 per, you know 60 percent 50 percent 30 percent of my applications are women so maybe i should be asking for manuscripts for about that same percentage mm-hmm. 
And if you're not, I think you got to take a real hard look at why you aren't. Yeah, and then it, we can run that waterfall the rest of the way. Publishers can set their own in-house goals mm -hmm. for how they want to do gender and other kinds of diversity and representation on their lists. But setting those and measuring them is... I think the first step, and we've seen it in house at Book Riot too, that as mm -hmm. we focused more on talking about diverse books, as we've all made more of an effort to read diversely so that we're talking about more diverse books so that the site can come closer to representing what's out there in the world of books and reading that we want to share with our readers that we know our readers want to read the books that come up every month as the most popular the things that people click on the most or that they buy through our amazon links the most mm -hmm. those lists have become more yep. diverse absolutely and that's not the truth. an accident yep i mean even in the deals i pick for book right mm -hmm. deals i try to do like the guests i have on reading lives like those are all very conscious decisions and actually it's not i don't actually find it hard to to fill it's just that you have to i have to think about it because I'm a white dude and I live in America and if left to my own devices of unconsciousness, I'm going to drift, if not steer directly headlong into picking people that look and sound and mm -hmm. act uh, like me. So, you know, again, the, the other thing this brings home is, especially when we talk about diversity and, and coverage and who gets deals, I, I think I've said this before, is that every step in the process has work to be done on it. It's not just readers needing to read more. It's not just publishers needing to publish more. It's not just editors needing to acquire more. It's not just agents needing to um, request more. It's just not writing students or writing teachers needing to nominate and mentor more. Um, it's not just teachers assigning different books. It's everyone in the chain. Um, and there is friction at every part of the chain. And so you can see reasons like, I, the first thing I thought when I read this, I don't know if it's fair or not, is like, just think if her name was Shaniqua Nichols. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think if there was some other bias well, if, trigger built into the name. If, if this were a woman with a black sounding name. Yeah. And she submitted under her own name and then she submitted under Jeff O'Neill. Or yeah, if she submitted as a white woman, it would be different. And mm -hmm. then if she also submitted under men's names, it would be different that whatever discrimination white women are experiencing in publishing and they are and that's real. It's amplified by orders of magnitude for people of color and yeah. women of color. Um, but each of those steps where there's friction, that friction compounds. Like if it's, mm -hmm. if it's twice as hard for you to get through stage one and twice as hard to get to stage two, that adds up to being four times as hard to get through two stages. Like that's how the math works. And I'm not good at math, but that's one thing I do know is that if you have a 50% chance of getting through two stages, your chance of getting through are only 25%. And if it's the, the DAC, this, the deck, uh, excuse me, the uh, deck is stacked against you. It's amazing. I mean, it's in a way, it's amazing. Anyone, any w black women or Hispanic women or, or Caribbean women get published. I mean, I don't know. It, the stick to and the dedication are just re really remarkable. Mm -hmm. I was thinking recently about that Ele the great Ellison quote where someone asks him, like, you're black and gay in America. Uh, Baldwin, ever... that's Baldwin. Oh, it's Baldwin, yes. right. You're black and gay in America. And, um, you know, did you ever think, like, how did I... I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. the, the interviewer asks him, like, have you ever wondered, like, how you got that crappy hand? And Baldwin is like, well, no, I think I won. Mm. But I've wondered, like, how difficult it would be for James Baldwin to get a deal Yeah, today. I know. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 I mean, this is, I am glad, 
I'm glad that this was a big deal on the internet. Mm -hmm. I'm glad it wasn't just sort of swept under the rug. Um, good job for Catherine for yeah. writing it. And she did, she definitely opened herself to some hits because I can see some people and I heard yeah, some people. And, man, don't go into the comments yeah, on this piece. Because um, you can see that, you can see why some people might get bent out of shape about misleading agents or something like that. I, and, I don't worry about that, to yeah. be honest. And, you know, I think, and she does acknowledge some in the piece that she feels a little guilty about misrepresenting herself to agents in service of conducting this. That's interesting, too, like a, a woman feeling guilty about a thing she's doing. You know, um, I don't feel bad about that for a very easy, logical move for me, is that people publish under their own initials mm -hmm. to cloud the issue. Sure. And if we don't get mad about that, I don't have any no. problem with this. Like, no it's, one was going to sign her to a deal saying, and then she's going to pop up and be like, you know what? You know, I don't think that was going to happen. And, you know, no experiment like this is ever going to be perfect. Right. Yeah. But we have to believe that these big problems that we have in the world and in publishing are made up of a whole bunch of small instances. Well, this is and, what it would and, look like, right? It right, like this is exactly what it like looks this, like. When yeah. somebody comes and says, here is my instance yeah. of this thing, we can't brush it aside as invalid because the way that they presented it is imperfect. You know, that can't be the initial response. And if reading this piece this week, your initial response was to try to come up with all of the reasons that this is not a thing that Catherine Nichols was wrong, that she's just one person, that maybe she sent her emails as George out at different times than she sent them out as uh, her own times. name. And it's a problem. Like that's a real, this, this is a real call to all of us who are called, all of us who are called on the carpet by the findings that she has mm. here need to be thinking about why am I so resistant to right. the fact that like why why can't I acknowledge that this is true? Right. Why do what I would so it badly take need for this you to, to say true? huh? Right. Right. Like I don't know what else she could have done. If to insofar as just being one person, mm -hmm. like what do you want a longitudinal double blind study of a whole bunch of writers sending their stuff out? Maybe that would maybe that's what it would take. Maybe it would take someone writing a research paper. And like sending out a bunch of manuscripts and like actually doing, you know, sending out thousands oh, of them. If you're in grad school right now, oh, please do that. Yeah, right. Like really do like come up, you know, write, you know, come up with 10 query letters um, and then give a uh, hundred of them female names and a hundred of them male names. Send them out to a bunch of agents and see what the results are. I mean, that'd mm -hmm. be another way someone could do this. That's beyond the pair of what we should expect from uh, Ms. Nichols herself or really anyone. But that's, you know, I'd like to see an agent do the homework, though. It's like, this, the, here's the reality of the queries I get. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the breakdown. And if they're brave, here's the breakdown of the query, the, the request I sent. Yeah, some internal auditing. Yeah. And this is literary fiction, auditing. right? Is mm -hmm. that where we thought this, it, that was, I was led to believe that this I was. I believe a, so, yes. Because I'm sure in romance, it's a different story. And mystery and mm -hmm. science fiction, they, they all have their different Yeah, romance biases. has its own inverted version of it where men right. submit under women's names to get published because there's so much belief that women only want to read well, romance novels. Wasn't there that story that some relatively famous romance writer was like an 80-year-old mm -hmm. dude yes. who had been mm -hmm. publishing under a that woman's did name forever? <laughs> so anyway, I mean, yeah. an amazing story and an eye-opening one and a sobering one and, and one that um, is is, and is well worth keeping in mind. You know Catherine Nichols probably had a rough week on the internet so yeah, I, I know. thank you for taking the risk and telling the important story. Yeah, okay. Boy, we got into that. Um, let's we're, see. We're like 
our show's almost over. I, I know. <laughs> well, the other the other big story, people, and some of these things people can hold because there are stats and things like that. But the other story that was being circulated around the last couple of days, and I don't know why someone someone I guess Entertainment Weekly picked it up, and so then other a lot of other people picked it up. But this is a story we saw from day one of Ghost mm-hmm. of the Watchmen um, being put on sale. That brilliant books uh, is in Michigan, Traverse, Traverse City, Michigan. City, Michigan. And, um, announced that they would be offering refunds for Ghost at a Watchman, calling it an academic insight rather than a nice summer novel. Owner Pete Meekin told Melville House that he decided to offer such refunds after hearing disappointment from a loyal customer. Um, yeah, so that's the that's the story that people are getting. This one bookstore, Brilliant Books, is giving refunds to people who are pissed off about mm-hmm. Ghost at a Watchman. You-, you and I think this is not a story. Why isn't it's, this as a story? I don't know. So many people tweeted it at me this week, and I was like, yes, I know. Yeah, I know. I don't want to talk the same about way. it. I don't Because we're not averse to talking about the minutia of Ghost of the right. Watchmen, but even for us, we're like, nah. You know, it's... So presumably the people who were mad about it were mad because they thought it was a new Harper Lee novel, and it's not a new Harper Lee novel. It's an early draft of To Kill a Mockingbird. But when we did our episode with Amanda a couple weeks ago about Ghost at a Watchman, we talked about how opaque a lot of the marketing around this book has been. Opaque. Opaque. <laughs> okay, I'm being generous, you mean, Jeff. You I mean gave the a thing a generous wall reading. Of obfuscation that was built around that's a companion. So, to... Right. So it is not surprising right. that just like normal readers out in the world who shop who walk into bookstores looking for something would pick up Go Set a Watchman and then be surprised to discover that it is what it is instead of being a completely original new Harper Lee thing. So I believe like I can completely picture how this conversation went down, how the customer bought the book and ended up in brilliant books and wanted their refund. And I'm, you know, pretty on board with some of the things that brilliant books says in their post about it. They say it's a disappointing and it's disappointing and frankly shameful to see our noble industry parade and celebrate this as Harper Lee's new novel. This is pure exploitation of both literary fans and a beloved American classic, which we hope has not been irrevocably tainted. I'm pretty Like, I'm pretty right there with them about how the book has been presented. The rest of the tone of the brilliant books piece is kind of condescending. Like, we suggest that this is how you view this novel. And, you know, it's comparable to these other very literary things. And if you don't like it, if you read it and it makes you mad, you can get your money back. Like, I think booksellers are doing their job when they educate their customers about what this book is. I hope mm. that booksellers are talking to people who walk in and are like, oh, there's a new Harper Lee. Like, I hope that they're standing there going, actually, it's this early draft. And so you can see how the character changed and there's some interesting stories about it and blah, blah, blah. Like, that's what booksellers exist to do. Uh, but the way that it's presented here, I don't super love. I also just don't think it's a thing. Like... How many other books is it possible to buy and be confused about and then you wouldn't be able to get a refund? Like part of the job as a reader is to look at the book you're about to buy. Like but readers are smart people. We should you know, maybe do some homework. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know whose fault this well, is. Well, I guess there's a couple of things. One, it, it, he decided this after one complaint, which I thought was interesting. Like a loyal customer. So I, I'm sure a regular mm-hmm. said, you know what, I feel, I feel uh, swindled here. I've been bamboozled. And he said, I guess he said, give him a, a refund. That's interesting in itself. I, you've been a bookseller. I never have. And my personality is if I read something and I didn't like it or I was mad about it, I would never ask for a refund. Like, couldn't you just, isn't it standard? Like, if you have the receipt, you get a refund in two weeks anyway? Like, I don't understand. What's so special about this? 
Yeah, I, Am I wrong? I, no, I don't know. Well, I mean, if the book appears the book hasn't to be, even been out thirty days. So yeah, I if mean, the book appears to be like when I was a bookseller, if the book appeared to be unread, if it was in, if it was still in saleable condition, no. and a person brought it in, like people tell you all kinds of things, and you mostly, at least I do, because I assume the worst of people often, they'd be like, "Oh, my mom bought me this book, and I already have it," and you're like, "Whatever, it was purchased three weeks ago. You totally read it, and you're returning it now." Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the policy is that you can return it, so you do. You let them return it. Like maybe Brilliant Books doesn't have that policy or maybe they felt like this was a special case because they're upset about the way that HarperCollins presented it. And I'm with them there. I do not think that no, I don't love it. I that don't HC love it. has been above board about the way that they've talked to readers about this book. And I do think it's a bookseller's job then to answer those questions. And if the customer just walked into the store and bought it and left and then was upset, I can see going back in and being like, well, I'm not happy about this. But I think in that case, as a bookseller, I would have been like, well, you've read the book. <laughs> like It's yeah. read. You've turned all the pages. It's it, so, this is your book. Like That's so a risk weird. you take when you yeah. buy a book. It's the risk you take when you walk into a movie theater. It's the risk you take when you order dinner. Right. Like... Not, I mean, it's one to... thing if it's bad. I guess it's another thing if you've been misled, right? Isn't that different? Yeah, like... but how often does copy on books mislead us? Like, and do book covers mislead us? This, yeah. it, like, this is not I, an isolated case. Yeah. It's well, maybe an extreme <laughs> case. <laughs> the funny thing about this article, too, is like there's this one unnamed person, and then the rest of the article is about how all these independent bookstores said, people really like it. We've had to reorder it five times. I've never heard one... Co- <laughs> I mean, so <laughs> one person complains and there's this, like, this story. I got it tweeted at me, like, six times today. So, so And, many. like, a couple like, of emails about Yeah, it. and Book Riot got a bunch of tweets yeah. about it. And, like, I was like, oh, it's, yes, I, we, we're we all talking about this. And I really don't know why. <laughs> it's, it's, that's more interesting to me that, so, that someone's offering a refund is, like, there's a, like, there's it, a little bit of a desire to what, see some backlash, I guess. I maybe. think that's what it is. It's, like an obtuse attempt on the part of book media to talk about the problems with the way that Gosetta Watchman is presented, but no one wants to like call it out all the way. So instead they're being like, well, this other bookstore is mad about it and they're offering refunds. And so let's just talk about that instead. Well, the funny thing is, is like most of the pieces I've seen about it in the, the outlets I follow I mean, the complexity of the situation is at least mentioned most of the time. Like the Times had this scorched earth op-ed about how it was, mm-hmm. a, it was a sin against everything. And like, you know, we've written about it a million different ways. The millions have written about it. Like, but like I, you're, I don't know. I think it's like, but the average person who reads books, who just like reads a few books a year, right? Yeah. Walks into a bookstore or picks something up in the airport bookstore, isn't reading us or the millions or the New York Times book review. I think, you know, like the average reader who's reading a couple books a year is walking into their bookstore and just picking stuff up. And there's nothing, there's no material in Ghost at a Watchman to explain to you what it is. No, I just mean this, this, this statement from Brilliant Books about the publishing industry, Mm. like the whole, well, it's Harper Collins. Yeah. And then most of the outlets I've seen write about Uh, it and like, what, what industry are they talking about? I mean, I, 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 I'm kind of, I, I agree, burn... I, I agree that, well, I don't really agree, I, I would advocate for some sort of forward to the book. Mm-hmm. I think that's totally appropriate. In fact, I think it's inexcusable that there isn't something there. 
Um, that doesn't say that breeders can't go out and find out on their own what the right. deal is. That, I mean, yeah. I don't, I don't go down. Yeah, the way information either. is available. Maybe the brilliant books. Well, since now I'm just being ungenerous. Mm -hmm. Maybe the brilliant books people didn't want to just directly call out Harper Collins because yeah, indie bookstores have complex relationships with publishers and need to keep them happy for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and so they made it about the industry perpetrating mm -hmm. this lie about yeah, book. Right, right, right. It's. It's easier to paint in broad strokes that way than it is to just say we have a problem with the way the publisher did this. Yeah, I just think that's interesting. We've got it tweeted at so many of all the stories we've ever done on the show. Frankly, I don't think I've ever had one tweeted as much as no. this one. And, and I, I think I don't know what are, that means. I read it as people are really interested in the like the truth of Ghostetta Watchmen and yeah. in what happens when someone who didn't know that that was the truth finds out it was the truth which right. is in, at least in this one case they wanted their money back and the bookstore agreed with them and made this new policy mm -hmm. um also everything with Harper Lee just goes crazy yeah I guess that's <laughs> right true now. you know the more time that goes by like I'm so glad it's out there because the the, the knock-on effect it's had is having people relook at To Kill a Mockingbird mm -hmm. with different eyes and that's that's a welcome and needed. And how many of our classics should we oh, reinterrogate? You mean all? You mean Just all, of, all them, of them? Right? Yeah. <laughs> all of them. Well, and we we were talking about it behind the scenes at Book Riot this week about um, there was a list where teachers, I think it was in the UK, but teachers yeah. got together and or were polled to create a list of like twenty books that everyone should read by the time they graduate from high school, and all of the books on the list were by white people. And we started talking amongst what the hundred of yes. us who write for the site about what were the books we were assigned in high school and how few of those. Most of were, us only had one or two. Mm -hmm, yeah. Were by anyone who wasn't white. And that we, we need to blow up the canon. Mm. And this is a start, I think. Yeah. So anyway, if you need to get a mm. receipt, you know, get a receipt for Ghost of the Watchmen and, and go, uh, you know, don't stain it. You can take it back. There's like a dramatic movie scene to be made some from like you know readers everywhere who are mad about Ghost of Watchmen like packing up their books and mailing them back to Harper Collins and Harper Collins mailroom overflows with rejected returned copies of Ghost of Watchmen with like angry notes stuck inside you know, them like it, it is so interesting because like, like this you article could do that doesn't even say what the loyal customer is mad about they didn't say if they thought the book was bad or that they like found out through secondary means that it's actually not you know, that is a, mm -hmm. a first version of something that wasn't To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, I, what were they mad about? Like, I think that's the other thing that's interesting is that it's very difficult to know what the crime is. You know, there, there's so many guilty parties that no one's really can take the blame. Like, it, it, right, like you uh, pointed out on our Watchmen show that we don't know if it was Harper Collins or someone from Lee's yeah. estate or the combination that were responsible for deciding there wouldn't be any explanatory material in the book. Yeah, that that uh, Tonya Carter's published, you know, the state's publishing it all, like who who does it and doesn't have authority. And like, and also the, I mean, the book is just good enough not to be insulting, you know, like it's not horrible, horrible. It's just kind of bad, in my opinion. <laughs> what do you, you know what I mean though? Like if it yeah. was way worse, then that would be something else. Or if mm -hmm. it was really good, then no one would have any problem with it. But it's like this weird in-between quality state of like, it's like half cooked. 
Yeah. And Think so, about if it were way better, we'd be like, well, how did it get edited? And if, if something yeah, were right. way better than To Kill a Mockingbird, we'd be like, oh, this is how it started and this is what we ended yeah, up Yeah, like with. if it was Sound in the Fury or something. Right. Like, like some crazy postmodernist, <laughs> <Right>. like <laughs> multiple perspective. We don't even know what's going on for the first 50 pages. Like, actually, it's from, it from the, the dog's perspective point of, of a view. Schiffer yeah, exactly. Right. Oh, they're playing golf. I mean, it could. Anyway, this is after dark. Yeah, it really is after dark. Uh, okay, you know, we got to get to our, our last sponsor <laughs> we here. We do. Uh, you know, if you wanted to go listen to Ghost of the Watchman, that now I have heard this legitimately that Reese Witherspoon's performance on Ghost of the Watchman is awesome. That was something I heard recently in the in the mm-hmm. book riot back channel. But you go to audible.com, get audiobooks to listen to those books. You would mean to get to read, meaning to read while you're on the go, at the gym, commute. All the places you can do audiobooks. Audible provides over 180,000 audio programs from leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers. Basically, if the audio version of something exists, Audible has it. Because they've got back issues of The New Yorker. They've got their own podcast series. They've got newspapers, business information, industry and trade journals, all kinds of stuff. And if you have something that you can plug into a wall and use... 99% of those things can run an Audible app of some kind. Over 500 MP3 players, not to mention all modern smartphones that still are going to be working. And unlike a rent- streaming or rental service, you get to own your book. So you can get it anytime, anywhere, download it, you buy it. You sign up, 30 days free. That includes an audiobook of your choice for free. Uh, go to audiblepodcast.com slash today to start your free trial. Um... I'm not all audiobooks this year, but I've listened to I just do my I do I've li- I've listened to 24 audiobooks Ooh. this year um, already. And the one I just started, I've been meaning to read forever and it's I just wasn't going to get to it in paper. It's Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond. Um, it is basically the question is trying to answer is why did some civilizations gain huge technological advantages over others that led to sort of the world we live in today with European colonialism? Uh, largely being, you know, why was it that Northern Europe, especially, um, had had the the technological will, will uh, not willpower, but technological firepower to basically colonize the world? Um, how did that happen? And where did the the, divide, the divergence among the civilizations happen? What were the precipitating factors? And the title is gives it away a little bit, but it's a combination of uh, disease, um, steel. And uh, technological advancements. I got a tidbit for you. I, I, I like to collect little facts for Michelle. Um, and this one I thought I'd pass along too. This stat from this book is there are 6,000 human languages spoken at the moment, you know, mm-hmm. around the world. Papua New Guinea has an unbelievable linguistic diversity. A thousand of those 6,000 languages are spoken in Papua New Guinea. Wow. Which is unbelievable and the book goes into some reasons for that but that's the kind of thing that he looks at molecular biology and evolution and anthropology and biology um you know another stat another thing that he mentions that just in the beginning i'm like an hour into it is uh you know there's no large land mammals in australia like the biggest thing there's like a kangaroo Mm -hmm. um and the theory is is that when um humans came to australia from the neighboring indonesian islands they large animals there had no predators and so they weren't used to having to like dodge shit uh-huh. and so they were easy to hunt and they got, just got wiped out huh. um, which is interesting to think about whereas in Africa the right. ecosystem there evolved alongside humans so that lions and zebras and wildebeest knew to stay away from those dudes over there because they've got like <laughs> fire and uh, sharp things 
Um, so that, that, that's, I'm into this right now, uh, uh, right now. So that's, that's my great. pick. We almost finished The Martian on a road ah, trip okay. last week. It is so good on audio. So good. I have read the book before. Bob had never read it. And he was like, okay, so the guy gets stuck on Mars and it's going to be a movie. And I'm pretty sure that I'm going to like it. And I had been like, no, no, you're going to love it. It's Space MacGyver. Yes. And that's, it's so true. It comes across in the voice of the book in print, but in audio, it's wonderful. And I don't have the narrator's name in front of me right now, but the man who performs it does a really wonderful job of just conveying the different characters and the sense of humor and also the problem solving that Mark Watney is doing as he gets stuck on Mars. Um, so we're almost finished with that. It has been a delight and a really, really great audiobook experience um, for for me and Bob. Who we, there's not a very big Venn diagram between mm. our reading tastes, and this was a perfect selection. If you need a book to share with a partner or a friend that you're traveling with, I think it was good. Um, I personally am listening to Forgetting to Be Afraid by Wendy Davis right now. And I'm early in that. I'm only about an hour into it. She's talking about her childhood and her family. But she, of course, was the Texas state senator who did the 13-hour filibuster on the floor of the um, legislature trying to stand down against legislation uh, that would limit women's reproductive freedom in Texas and um, was very well known for that, but has been really active in fighting for women's rights and reproductive freedom for her entire career. And I'm so into books by badass ladies right now. Um, the, she reads the introduction and then there's a um, professional audiobook narrator that reads the rest. And so far, it's been really interesting um, learning about her life and her family and, you know, sort of starting to put the pieces together that made the person. So stay tuned for more about that. Cool. All right, audiblepodcast.com slash book riot. Start your free trial. Um, thanks so much, Audible, for continuing support of the show. All right, tell me about new books. New books this week. Uh, this one was kind of snuck up on me. I really liked it. The Girl Who Slept with God by Val Berlinski. It's a novel set in the 1970s in a small town in Idaho. The main character is 12. She has an older sister who is, uh, her whole family is religious. Her parents are sort of the proto-evangelicals that like if you knew, if you were a church kid in the 90s, like this is the generation before that in a small town in Idaho. Um, her older sister is like very righteous, very religious, is always keeping everyone else in the family in line and is sort of very touchy about any implied criticism of her behavior. So the older sister goes on a mission trip to Mexico. She comes back pregnant. She says that the baby is God's and no one believes her, but also everyone is afraid to challenge her about it. And the parents are super ashamed that this has happened. They don't want anyone in their community to know. So they buy a house a couple towns over and they send the 12 year old main character and her pregnant older sister to live what? in the house by themselves. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's like the guest house on the property of an old lady that they didn't meet until they bought the house. And the parents are just going to come over a couple times a week with groceries. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so the main character gets pulled out of the small Christian school that she's used to going to. She goes to public school. She meets kids who are into all the things that typical teenagers are into. She's thrown into this new world. At the same time, this creepy guy in his mid-20s who drives the ice cream van, because like, if you need a creepy guy, of course, he should drive an ice cream van, befriends her and her sister and like takes them swimming and tries to be close to them in their lives and 
and like you feel like it's weird but it never goes to the totally bad place that it could go to um and the book ultimately you know has some big explosive moments of conflict between these girls and their parents and their community but becomes about the tensions between the between religious faith and the very physical you know unholy realities of our lives. It's really smart. It's um, one of the great debut novels of the year. 2015 is having so many great debut novels. Um, and I thought perfect for summer. I just tore through it. Um, for short stories, Barbara the Slut and Other People. It's a, a short story collection by Lauren Holmes, uh, which is about life and love and fidelity and infidelity. And there is a story from the perspective of the dog. Mm. <laughs> Um, which is great and hysterical. Uh, there's a story from a perspective of a teenage girl who is Barbara the Slut about how she got that nickname in high school. There's my favorite one, Liberty talked about it on all the books um, in the collection, is about a young woman who just graduated from law school and has moved across the country with her very ambitious boyfriend who also just graduated from law school. Maybe he's her husband. I don't remember. He's gotten a fancy job. She can't get a job and also like can't motivate herself to look for one as a lawyer. So she finally gives in and gets the first job she can find, which is at a local sex store where she has to pretend to be a lesbian in order to keep the job. And then she has to do increasingly desperate and ridiculous things to keep her boss believing that she's gay so she can keep the job. Um, and it becomes absurd and really great. Um, in paperback this week, we have Point by Brandy uh, Colbert or Colbert. I need to figure out how to pronounce that. But I'm blaming Stephen Colbert for the fact that when I see these letters together, I'm going to think Colbert for the rest of my life. Um, it's a book about ballet about a teenage girl named Theo. Her best friend comes home after four years of being kidnapped. And Theo starts reliving memories about his abduction, about her friend Donovan's abduction and the person who took him. She knows some things about how that happened. And she has to decide between telling the truth, which will put her uh, ballet career at risk, or keeping quiet, which could put a whole bunch of other things at mm. risk. And it's getting billed as Black Swan Meets Speak by Lori Hulse Anderson. Um, Brandy Colbert is a Black author, and Theo, the main character of the story, is a Black teenage girl. We don't get many stories about black teen ballerinas. And this one was uh, widely praised when it came out in hardcover. So that's point P O I N T E like dancing on point and it's out in paperback. All right. Well, we went way over this week, but you know, there's a lot to talk about. You got metaphorically a flutter. We both had feelings. We, we definitely had feelings, um, complicated, interesting feelings, uh, this <laughs> week. You got feedback for us. You want to let us know what you think about any of these things. A lot of good comments last week. Um, Mm -hmm. About the the uh, the did we decide the, that was a banning? That that's not really a banning, right? Challenging the thing about what uh, some girls are, right? Courtney yeah, some Summers. girls are because it got taken off the list, but we didn't hear it getting like pulled off the shelves or anything like that, mm -hmm. did we? Um, which I guess that's what I would call a banning. It actually gets pushed, but this the uh, decision to pull some girls are off this uh, reading list. Um, a lot of good feedback there. Um, thank you so much for that. For, as always, you can, you can find show notes, bookriot.com slash podcast for show notes on this episode and all past episodes. We'll have links to the books Rebecca talked about and all the stories we mentioned this week, as long as our great sponsors, Scribd, Audible, uh, 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 bookriotlive.com, I should mention as well, is in their offer code, wheelhouse, get $20 off, and Devil Dead by Linda Ladd. Thank you so much for sponsoring the show. You can email us at podcast at bookriot.com. And uh, that's our show this week. Big show. Big show. Have a good one. <laughs>